it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, March the 25th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show, and I am so happy to have you all here. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. Also around the clock on demand for free on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. And I mentioned yesterday we were seeing some of our podcast numbers, and they are just going through the roof. And we are just so grateful to all of you who are listening, no matter how you listen. And there are many ways to listen. We especially encourage listening live on our great affiliates, other partners like odyssey.com. You can go through Fox Nation where there's a live stream. The Fox News app, you've got options. The one-stop shop is guybensonshow.com. That's for listening live, that's for the podcast, it's all right there. guybensonshow.com. On the program here today, Charlie Hurt will join us later this hour. We'll get his thoughts on the news of the day. Julie Banderas, one of our Fox News colleagues, she was anchoring earlier today. She will be here as well. Carl Rove, with his political thoughts, talking about the midterms and more, he will be here at the top of our final hour, just after 5 Eastern. And then we will conclude the program today with Fridays with Kat, Kat Timpf, in studio up in New York. That will be a lot of fun, I would imagine, because it's always unpredictable with Kat Timpf. As we come on the air today, something very interesting happened just a few hours ago, and I want to share with you what the Russians are doing. And this comes via a correspondent for the Financial Times. And before that, she was a Reuters reporter. And she, her name is Polina Ivanova, is reporting on a press conference, a briefing that was delivered today by the Russian military. So this is the official Kremlin line. And part of my reaction to this was to laugh at it because they are telling obvious brazen lies. But I think there's a deeper meaning to some of this. So let me just read to you what she reports. Russia's military held a big briefing this afternoon announcing the war was entering a second phase And she goes through and has a shot, a screenshot of the briefing. They've got a map of Ukraine, and she relays what the Russian military is now claiming. They say the generals and Russia always intended to only, quote, liberate the Donbass, which is what it set out to do. All their other moves were just to help fortify the Donbass or distract the Ukrainians. That's what they're claiming. Over a month of war, Russia has knocked out most of Ukraine's military capacities. This is what they're claiming. And now they can move on to the next phase. Now, keep in mind, 
if there's one side that has been substantially degraded over this last month, it's not the Ukrainian side. But this is what the Russians have to say. It's what they have to tell themselves. It's what they have to tell their public. It's what they have to tell their leadership. It's what they have to tell the world. But here's where I think it gets really revealing in this thread. Russia had never intended to capture Kiev or Kharkiv or other cities, according to the generals. These are not setbacks. It's all part of the plan, which was to make and hold gains in the east. The generals also made numerous statements about not targeting civilian infrastructure and trying to avoid civilian casualties, which we know is a complete falsehood. What they've done throughout Ukraine, but especially in the South, Mariupol being the worst example, they have been slaughtering civilians knowingly. They have bombed hospitals, schools, theaters, shopping malls, apartment complexes. It is downright outrageous for them to claim to the world that they've tried to avoid civilian casualties. It's just a total propaganda from the Russians. So some of this is angeringly false. Some of this makes you sort of smirk like, oh, yes, we never meant to take over the whole country. We never meant to take over the capital city and some of these other major cities. That was never the goal. This is all the plan all along. Oh, really? That's why you sent your troops on multiple axes of attack, clearly targeting, among other things, the capital city of Kiev, led by what you de- described as Nazis, and you had to go denazify the country and all of that? When you were boasting that this was going to be a brief peacekeeping mission and that you were going to take over the country very quickly— And that was the expectation set. And then, of course, that hasn't played out. So instead, we are treated to this just risible spin from the Kremlin that actually this is not what they meant to do all along. Like what what the world thinks they were trying to do, like capture the country, take over Kiva. No, no, no. You had that. That's all wrong. That's all wrong. That was never the goal. We just wanted to do some of this stuff in the East. That's all. Now. Why not just dismiss this as, like, facially ridiculous damage control, which it is, right? It's insulting nonsense from the Russians when you look at the actual facts on the ground. Why lead with their propaganda on the show today, you might be asking? Well, here's why. If they're talking about a new phase of the war— And if they're talking about all they really wanted all along was the Donbass region and the east, and if they're claiming that, of course, it was never their goal ever to take a city like Kiev, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like an admission of failure by the Russians and a change in their strategy and their publicly stated goals. They can dress it up in this ludicrous way. Like, oh, we meant to do that. The plan is still the same. Our plan all along was to have, what, 15,000 troops killed. Six generals. A sixth general has now been killed on the battlefield. There is a report of a commander being killed by his own troops. 
who basically revolted. They've been humiliated. They've been bombarded. They've lost tank after tank after tank. Their soldiers don't have food to eat. They don't have fuel for their vehicles. They don't have enough ammunition. They've got frostbite in a lot of cases. Obviously, this is not going according to their plan. But if they are now insisting that this was their plan all along and that all they really were interested in doing was controlling those so-called breakaway regions in the east and maybe some surrounding areas, and it was never, ever their intention, silly West, silly propagandists and imperialists or whatever they're going to call us. It was never their intention, ever, to take Kharkiv, to take Kiev, to take over the whole country. This very well could be actually a very important day in this war. This briefing, while laughable, on its face for the reasons that we've discussed actually strikes me as potentially extremely consequential. We talk about off ramps. We talk about de-escalation. And again, I don't want to get too optimistic here, too Pollyannish. I don't want to read too far into things. But from where I sit right now, if the Russians publicly for the world to see are limiting the scope of what their supposed intentions all along were and ruling out a the hostile takeover of the entire country, which is, of course, what they were trying to do, but they failed. And they're broadcasting and telegraphing very explicitly to everyone, no, we never meant to do that. We never wanted to do that. We weren't going to take over Kiev. That could be the type of pivot, the type of de-escalation, the humiliating but still attempt at face-saving that might be pointing toward some sort of resolution here. They'll never admit that they failed. They'll never concede defeat. That's not the Putin way. That's not the Russian way. But they clearly are desperate at this point to the, to the extent that they are willing to abandon goals that they were committing a lot of resources to achieving through this fanciful idea that actually don't believe your eyes and ears. That's not what they were trying to achieve. We wanted to do this much smaller thing, which we've done. And all that other stuff, uh, we were never interested in that. Reuters analyzed what just happened this afternoon or earlier today this way, quote, the announcement from these Russian military officials appeared to indicate that Russia may be switching to more limited goals after running into fierce Ukrainian resistance in the first month of the war. That is, to me, potentially quite encouraging. And who knows, you know, Putin's fickle, he could get angry, he could decide that, actually, no, we do want to take over the country, we're going to use WMDs to do it, right? I, I'll believe a de-escalation and a resolution when I see it, but this is at least just using critical thinking skills and not any sort of special expertise that I have. This is not my area of expertise. It seems that in a an officially sanctioned military briefing from the Kremlin for them to say these things, they weren't just doing this out of nowhere. This feels like a climb down and a significant one. And part of the reason might be internal pressures. I talked about the body count that keeps growing. 
including half a dozen generals now. There's a piece in the Daily Mail written by Professor Mark Galliotti, who is a Putin biographer. He has written a book on Putin. He's studied Russian history. This is his area. And here's what he writes in the new piece that was published late yesterday. He says, a miasma of indecision is gripping Vladimir Putin's inner circle today. His regime looks under serious threat for the first time since he came to power in 2000. The war in Ukraine has turned into a disaster and everyone is looking for other people to blame. Anyone can be denounced as a warmonger or a traitor or even both. He says the seething atmosphere of mistrust is being stoked by intelligence services, both in Ukraine and in the West, of course. But this is actually playing out in the corridors of the Kremlin. And he goes on to talk about the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB and Putin's henchmen, and how there are oligarchs and power seekers who are getting worried about Russia's position in the world about the sanctions, about Russia's economy. And if that quiet whisper campaign grows and grows into a cacophony, that's when you really run into a problem holding on to power if you're Putin, which is why you're starting to see some key figures getting arrested, disappearing, or even fleeing the country. And this professor and this Putin biographer lists a number of them in this column. I mean, and these, these are not small fish. These are big fish. Intelligence officers, the defense minister, the person who basically decided that Putin was his protege and helped install him as the head of government, you know, 20 plus years ago. These are big names. Here's how the story, this analysis from this professor and Putin biographer concludes. Never since the collapse of the Soviet Union has there been such fervid rumor and counter rumor in the Kremlin. A circular firing squad is forming and everyone is pointing their guns at each other. And when conscripts start returning from the Ukraine front, bringing with them horror stories of the war, the political temperature will only rise. Right now, most ordinary people in Russia believe the state TV version that a successful military operation is underway to oust a neo-Nazi cabal in Kiev and prevent ethnic cleansing or even nuclear genocide against Russians in Ukraine, because that's the crazy town story that the propaganda machine is telling ordinary Russians. But as more ordinary Russians wake up to the reality that that's not true, that's a pack of lies, that a bunch of their boys are going off and being killed for no reason and it's going disastrously, That changes things. And this professor, Mark Galliotti, says when that lie is exposed, the people might start to turn against the man at the top. How his cronies respond to that will determine Putin's fate. So my question is, as we come on the air today, at day 29 of this war, if Putin is feeling exactly this, If the pressure that I just described and read in that piece is real, 
the failures on the battlefield are apparent and undeniable. And if he's looking to extricate his military from a total disaster that he's presided over while also maintaining his own power, if he's paranoid and worried that this could be the end for him, might he authorize the military to basically try to rewrite history in a way that says, in a denialist fashion, we never wanted to take over Ukraine. We just wanted to do this more limited thing, and that's our new second phase. I think we should all hope and pray that that is what's happening here, which could allow real peace negotiations to take place in earnest and bear fruit and put an end to this carnage for which Putin is responsible. So it was a giant performance of propaganda earlier at the Kremlin, but one that could be very important. Let's hope so, for the reasons I just outlined. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Friday. We are just getting going. Very happy to have you here. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Charlie Hurt coming up next. We will shift away in all likelihood from foreign policy onto some of the domestic stuff, controversies, etc., and get Charlie's take on that upcoming. Just one more thought on that opening monologue, because I've been reading some analyses from people, including maps, about who controls what territory in Ukraine. And it's just undeniable that in the last few days, the Ukrainians absolutely have made gains, pushing Russian forces farther back from Kiev. And other key areas in the north and the northeast, there have been uh, some major signs of progress and regained territory by the Ukrainians. That's another element of the pressure here that the Russians are certainly feeling on top of the casualties, the loss of equipment, the loss of you know, top-ranking officials and generals. The question I have is, if today's press conference was a pivot, just wrapped in a bunch of crazy propaganda, but indicating that the Russians want to move out of most of Ukraine and just stick to the east and maybe come to some sort of truce? Will they start to withdraw their troops near Kiev? That would be another key indicator that maybe we're onto something here. We'll keep an eye on it. Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. It's Friday. GuyBensonShow.com. Every day is our website and the podcast every day available for free to all of you if you can't listen live. With us now is Charles Hurt, opinion editor at The Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday. 
Happy Friday to you guys. So we saw yesterday Senator Mitch McConnell announced that he is a no on Judge Jackson and her Supreme Court nomination. And then today, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, a Democrat, said that after much consideration, he is going to be a yes on her nomination. None of that surprises me. My prediction all along has been every single Democrat will vote yes in the Senate. Maybe one or two, three max on the Republican side will vote yes. She'll be fairly easily confirmed and I believe it'll be early April when that vote is expected before the full Senate. Does that all sound about right to you in terms of the numbers game, at least? Yeah. Uh, the only thing that I would sort of be interested in is um, I don't think a Supreme Court nominee uh, nominated by a Democrat has ever gotten out of the Judiciary Committee um, without at least one Republican vote just because Republicans have always tried to show at least some deference to Democrat uh, presidents. Um, so it'll be, it'll be interesting if she gets out on a straight party line vote or if uh, she manages to pick up uh, one stray vote just, uh, just out of sort of deference. See, I mean, here's the thing, and I think that's an important point because I think we've all been so colored by, for example, the Kavanaugh disgrace that the left pulled that we've maybe forgotten or just lost sight of the fact that it wasn't that long ago. In fact, during the last Democratic presidency, Barack Obama had two Supreme Court justices that he put on the bench. Both of them, Kagan and Sotomayor, got a significant number of Republican votes in the Senate. I mean, it wasn't like overwhelming, but if I'm not mistaken, they were both somewhere in the 60s. I mean, it was it was north of 60 for sure overall. And there were Republicans who, who voted like Lindsey Graham voted for both of them. And he's talked about that. It wasn't long ago that you would get crossover votes because the question was, is the person qualified? If the person was qualified, generally senators of both parties would find a way to get that person confirmed. And we're not there anymore. It just seems totally party line based on ideology. We saw that this is a war that has been escalated almost every time by the Democrats. And they had, I think, a, a grand total during the Trump years of three Supreme Court justices put on the bench during Trump. I think there were a total of three yes votes on the Democratic side for all three of those combined. And it was like Joe Manchin twice. I think there might have been one other. It was just very, very few Democrats voted for Gorsuch or for Kavanaugh or for Barrett. And none of that had anything to do with qualification. It had everything to do with politics and ideology. And I just I wonder, is that now the new norm or is there any way to go back to something a little bit less contentious and fractious? Yeah, I have a hard time seeing how we go back to, to anything. But 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 you're right. I mean, that's where we should go back. And and that's where sanity reigns. But this is really the problem. And it always has been or at least has been for uh, especially the last 30 years, but probably pretty much the last 50 years with because as it's sort of, uh, you know, gotten moved further and further to this point, you know, if you're walking and this is the problem for Republicans, if you're walking down the street and somebody grabs you and pulls you into the sewer and start, starts fighting with you in the sewer, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of difficult for you to sit there and say, well, I'm not going to fight someone in the sewer. Well, you're already in the sewer and that's where your enemy has dragged you and mm-hmm. you don't really have a choice. And that's kind of where Republicans are right now. And, and, and we, you know, you know, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. On the one hand, if they play by proper rules, um, they are, uh, you know, we rip them 
because they're not fighting hard enough. But then when they get into the gutter and try to play gutter politics, people we get upset because people like, you know, sane, decent people on our generally speaking uh, on these issues on our side, we don't we, we would be appalled at the idea. Can you imagine uh, uh, if somebody came forward with no evidence and accused Judge Jackson of sexually assaulting them? based on pure fantasy and no evidence whatsoever, we, we would all be horrified, and we would reject that. But this is where they have, have taken, it, taken this, the whole, you know, this whole fight. But here's the other thing, and, and, and you know, I've, judicial nominations has always been my, my favorite issue because it is, as you just said, it's where, um, it's where philosophy, governing political philosophy, hits raw politics. And that's always made it the most interesting. Uh, in fact, my, my the, the name of my my weekly column is called the Nuclear Option because of hmm. because of that. And it's and 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 but this is where things have really changed over the last couple of decades. Is Democrats are embracing a judicial philosophy that is based on the idea that the Constitution doesn't mean what it says. And I don't know what's more amazing that you would have people publicly making that argument or that you would have Republicans who are so dumb they can't win that argument. But here we are, and, and this, is where the, this is where the fight is, and, and, and we don't have any choice but to kind of, kind of fight this fight. By the but way, the, yeah. it, and it's, it's gotten ugly, and, and we spent a lot of time yesterday on the uh, Washington Post editorial that was just laugh-out-loud insulting claiming that what the Republicans put Judge Jackson through this week was worse than Kavanaugh, and that when you look at the judicial confirmation wars, the Republicans bear most of the blame for how ugly things have gotten. I mean, that is absolutely the opposite, 180 from the truth. But that's what the editorial board at the Washington Post asserted, and we spent 45 minutes here on the show yesterday completely filleting that argument, which was just a very weak argument for obvious reasons. They don't have the facts on their side, not even close. I want to fact check myself. The total number of Democratic senators who voted in favor of any of President Trump's three Supreme Court nominees over those four years was four. So with Neil Gorsuch, he was confirmed in 2017. He got three Democratic votes. Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, who's gone, and Joe Donnelly, who's gone. So he got all the Republicans and three Democrats. That was Gorsuch. Then Kavanaugh was next. Kavanaugh got one Democrat vote, and that was Joe Manchin. And then Amy Coney Barrett was last, and she got zero Democrat votes. So it went from three to one to zero over the course of the Trump presidency when, in fact, for many years it was a bipartisan tradition for qualified nominees to get pretty overwhelming votes, uh, especially at that level, at the Supreme Court level. And based on the actions of the Democrats, those days, at least for now, are gone. And you know, if we were playing under the, I don't know, 2013 rules, 20 before they nuked the filibuster on judges, I think you would get a good number of Republicans voting for Judge Jackson. I certainly would have been against filibustering her. I would have considered voting for her. I mean, she was a she is qualified. I just think that she's a leftist who will be wrong on almost everything 
that wasn't always a reason to vote no, but now it is. I mean, is that where you are on her, or do you do you view her as uh, you know more insidious perhaps than I do? I just I see her as a run of the mill, smart, qualified, but a sort of typical so-called progressive jurist who will be part of that block of the court on every big case. Well, for, for me, first of all, if you, if you believe that the Constitution doesn't mean what it says, then to me you're completely unqualified. Judge Jackson said that she does believe that the Constitution means what it says, which is a, a, an extraordinary departure from previous nominees, Democrat nominees. Uh, but I'll, i got to tell you, Guy, that exchange about her refusal, her inability to be able to say, and we can laugh about this and say, this is a ridiculous question, please define a woman, but this is the new sewer that Democrats have dragged us into. And so it's not a laughing matter anymore. We need to kind of slow everything down. And obviously, you know, I would argue that's a question you ask somebody at the registration desk at the insane asylum in order to figure out how insane they are. But she was unable to answer that question and claimed that it was outside of her expertise. And if she wants to claim, and Democrats want to claim, that people's lived experience is an important part of being a judge, well, if you, if you don't know what a woman is, especially if you are a woman and you, you have, you're married to a surgeon and you've had two children and you still, in, the, in that public arena, can't explain what a woman is, I don't think you have the lived experience to be on the court, according to Democrat, the Democrats' philosophy, judicial philosophy. I just want to say to clarify my position, when I say that she's qualified, I'm talking about her CV, her resume, right? She's, she's done the work. She's had the jobs. She is qualified. I just think that her worldview and her judicial philosophy, whatever it might be, that is the basis of my objection to her. Uh, by the way, I've also just been doing a little bit of research here, Charlie, just to make sure that I've got all my facts straight. Uh, and I was right. Elena Kagan got 63 votes for her confirmation, including five Republicans. Sonia Sotomayor got 68 votes for her confirmation, including nine Republicans. So that wasn't that long ago. That's not ancient history. That's the Obama administration. And after those things happened. You had this uh, further escalation with the blowing up of the filibuster on judges, which is what Harry Reid and the Democrats did as a power grab. And then the Democrats retaliated by making basically all these votes party line with a total of four Democratic votes for Trump's three Supreme Court nominees from four Gorsuch, one Kavanaugh, zero Barrett. And that obviously has nothing to do with qualifications. I mean, Neil Gorsuch set aside the circus of Brett Kavanaugh. We talked about that, as I mentioned yesterday. Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett, just to focus on them, and I would say even more so to some extent, Kavanaugh, were unquestionably qualified in terms of their resume, smart people qualified to be on the court. That didn't matter to almost any of these Democrats, and in fact, in the case of Barrett, to none of the Democrats. Qualifications was not the basis for their no votes, and I don't understand why. So we have, for example, California Senator Alex Padilla was lamenting this as if this is like a Republican problem this week. Listen to cut 26 real quick, Charlie. My question is this, and I address it to Congresswoman Beatty and to Mr. Henderson. For those who are concerned about the politicization of the Supreme Court towards one end of the spectrum or the other, what would it say to the country 
if even someone with Judge Jackson's background, experiences, and qualifications cannot earn bipartisan support from the Senate. Right. So he's wringing his hands about this problem. But the problem, Senator, is on your side of the aisle. Like your party did this. This this, you know, this notion that, oh, gosh, look at the qualifications, look at the background of this woman. How can there not be bipartisan support for her? It's because we've just lived through this history in recent years of what the Democrats have done here. Right. And if they're trying to make it and the implication might be, Charlie, oh, look, she's she's not only qualified and smart and all these things. She's also a woman of color and sort of the, the suggestion, maybe the Republicans don't want to give her bipartisan support for that reason. I think some people named Miguel Estrada and Janice Rogers Brown would like a word on that front. Oh, yeah. And of course, uh, neither uh, Miguel Estrada nor Janice Rogers Brown, um, uh, you know, uh, used their their uh, their gender. Oh, I think we just lost we lost Charlie, but he was going to say they didn't use their gender or their skin color as part of their grievance when they were filibustered and blocked by the Democrats. The reason being, the Dem- this was back in George W. Bush era, Bush had nominated Miguel Estrada and Janice Rogers Brown, a Hispanic lawyer, very respected, and a black female judge to significant spots on courts of appeals. The Democrats blocked them. They put in their own memos that they were blocking Estrada because he is Latino. They wrote that down. They were worried that he was being groomed for the Supreme Court. They didn't want the Republicans to get the first Latino on the Supreme Court. So they filibustered him until he withdrew because in their own words, because he's Latino. Joe Biden went on TV and bragged that he would lead a filibuster against Janice Rogers Brown, a black woman and a judge on the Supreme Court of California, if she were nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. And and yet they're sort of like, look at these look at this qualified person of color in Katanji Brown Jackson and her amazing resume, how is it possible that this person would not get bipartisan support? I think the answer is in the annals of very recent history and the conduct and the machinations of the Democratic Party. And, Charlie, I'm not saying that as a conservative, although I am one. I think that is just empirically the truth, the factual information of what the history is here. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. And, and um you know, obviously, uh, Miguel Estrada and Janice Rogers Brown were both, um, uh, you know, profoundly qualified and yes. uh, extraordinary jurists uh, in their own light, and, and, as you pointed out. And, I, you know, you can't say it enough. It was Ted Kennedy and Dick Durbin himself. It was their committees who, as you, as you noted, uh, rejected Miguel Estrada because, and I'm quoting, he was a quote-unquote dangerous Latino because of uh, what what the what the scalp would or, the, you know, the political bragging rights would would mean yep. if if George W. Bush were able to to put him on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And, then, and of course, you know, with the obvious attempt to then put him on the Supreme Court from there. And the, and the Democrats turned that scandal, that racism, frankly, into a scandal about which Republican staffer found the memo and leaked it to the press. And the press was more than happy to play along with that. The story wasn't the Democrats rejected a qualified jurist because of his skin color and race. It was who leaked the memo. I actually just told this story to some college students from Yale this week. 
They had never heard the name Miguel Estrada. They'd never heard the name Janice Rogers Brown. I told them, and you could see them, like, did that really happen? They're, like, Googling on their phones. Is that real? Yeah, it's real. And that absolutely informs this arc that we're talking about, which has been bending in a bad direction, an ugly direction in these fights. And one party is overwhelmingly responsible. I would note very quickly, Charlie, that Clarence Thomas, the associate justice, had been hospitalized recently. He has now been discharged and is reportedly doing well. That is very good news, a relief certainly today, and we wish him well in that continued recovery. Justice Thomas out of the hospital, which is fabulous. May he serve on the bench for many, many years to come. Charlie Hurt at the Washington Times, a Fox News contributor, my guest here. Charlie, always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Great to talk to you. Have a good weekend. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. This is interesting. A poll from Politico asked parents of school-aged children their thoughts on the effects of masks when it comes to their kids. Masks in schools. And the question was, what effect do you think they're wearing a mask during the school day has had on their general schooling experience? So this is kind of overall. What do you think of the masks overall? 11% of parents responded that they believe the masks helped their kids. 41% of parents said it hurt their kids. 47% said it made no difference. So the overwhelming majority of parents said it either hurt their kids or made no difference. And yet it was the policy across so much of this country. And the 11% there were largely in charge for far too long. Another hour coming up. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Locked and loaded for our middle hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our second of three, between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast on demand, free of charge every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes up today, 153 points in the green, closing out for the week at 34,000. 861. Pleased to welcome back to the show now Julie Banderas, Fox News anchor. She was in for Harris Faulkner today on the news channel. I was watching earlier. Julie, great to have you back here. Why, thank you for watching. By the way, why is your podcast still free? I mean, you need to start charging for this. I mean, this is like gold. Well, I mean, I mean this they're, is they're... Worth a lot of money. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. I mean, you can take that up with management. There are ads, it does make us money, and it's really been growing. I mean, the. I don't think we're technically allowed to share the numbers, but we just got the numbers in from last month, and they were really, really strong. So uh, we Doesn't appreciate we appreciate all the support we're getting. And tell your friends, tell your family, let's keep this show growing. <laughs> and, uh, Julie, you've been a guest on this show multiple times, so you get some of the credit. I do want to start with this on a serious note. There was an update today about the condition of our colleague Benjamin Hall who was very seriously wounded in Ukraine. Two of our other colleagues working with him were killed under fire in that country. 
And the CEO of Fox News put out a statement internally here earlier today, Suzanne Scott writing, quote, we've had an outpouring of care and concern about Benjamin Hall. So I wanted to share a brief update with everyone. She went on to say that yesterday Ben was transferred from a medical facility in Germany to the Brook Army Medical Center at Joint Base San Antonio and Fort Sam Houston in Texas. That place, she writes, is a premier military medical facility, and Ben is receiving excellent care while he continues to recover from his serious injuries after multiple surgeries. We are in close contact with Ben and his family. He remains in good spirits despite everything he has endured. His strength and resiliency in the face of this crisis have been nothing short of extraordinary. Please continue to keep him in your prayers, and we will continue to provide further updates as needed. Obviously, this is wonderful news that not only has he survived these wounds and these surgeries, he's now home in the United States. And I know he's a young guy with a young family and kids. This has to have been a nightmare for them. But this is, again, an update that certainly is welcome to the entire team here at Fox News. Yeah, absolutely. I was on the air the day that this story broke, and I was aware of the accident that had happened, um, the attack, before we went on the air. And I've worked very closely with Ben, so I was very, very emotional that day. Um, And I've been in very close contact with other people behind the scenes. So I've known about the transfer and about the injuries he sustained, which, you know, I I won't go into detail, but very, very serious grave injuries. It is a miracle he is still alive, quite frankly. Um, And the vehicle that was attacked, in fact, the vehicle that they were traveling in was targeted by Russian troops. The missile, the, 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 the shelling that hit their car hit on the trunk. Um, not the truck, I'm sorry, the engine, and and that's what basically made this car explode. And that's what they're doing. They're targeting journalists, and when they target vehicles, and not just journalists, but civilians, if you've watched any video out of Ukraine, these missiles, these shellings, are actually going right toward the engine because they know when the you know engine gets hit, you're going to deal with an explosion, which is almost impossible to survive. Um, Benjamin wasn't in the car when it happened. And, uh, and it's a miracle he survived. And his wife, he has three little girls. And, you know, just looking at the pictures of him and his girls, he has this Instagram post. You have to go on his Instagram page and just look at the beautiful pictures of his family. And there was this one picture that just had me in tears the night that I found out this happened, where he says, every day in my day in my house is International Women's Day. And he posted this on International Women's Day. And he has three adorable, beautiful little girls piled on top of him. And it just speaks volume as to, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a girl dad, you know, and he's just so special. And his wife has actually said that it's incredible how resilient it is. He is, but if there is anyone that can get through this with an actual smile on his face or with a positive attitude, it's Benjamin Hall. I mean, I Mm. I could never have the strength that he has. My understanding is the vehicle was prominently and clearly labeled as a press vehicle. Is that your understanding as well? I've seen the vehicle. Um, I wouldn't say it was prominently labeled as press. Hmm. I mean, it was a van that honestly doesn't look like a, a press vehicle, but it was supposedly an armored van. I don't know for sure if that's the case, but that's what I was told. Uh, I've seen the van. Unfortunately, the van, that, the picture that I saw was after the attack, so the whole front oh. end is missing. 
So I don't know if it had press plates or not press plates, but even any kind of identification. Yeah, I, I heard there were markings that said reason, press. I'm sure somewhere on the vehicle, and that's the problem, because the press have targets on their backs, not just the civilians, not just the theater that was attacked the other night with a sign that said children outside it. Okay? Right. If they're so not going to if they're not going to hold their fire for children. children. Oh, absolutely. If they're going to bomb children, certainly the press there, they were no one is being spared um, of, of, of uh, you know, by by Putin and his murderous, you know, war crimes. Julie, let me ask you about the situation in Ukraine. Of course, our president is over in Europe right now, and he's been in Brussels. He's got Poland on the agenda. He made a few statements yesterday that raised some eyebrows. One of them was about chemical weapons. There is a concern that Vladimir Putin, a cornered Russia, might use WMDs because they've been humiliated. They're losing. Could they take some of these weapons of mass destruction and, and unleash further misery? on Ukraine, hoping to get concessions or some sort of surrender from the government in Kiev. And the question was posed to the president, what would the U.S. and NATO do if the Russians used chemical weapons? And I guess it was almost like a moment potentially for a red line. We remember the red line under Obama that was not enforced in Syria on chemical weapons. This would be potentially a red line moment for Biden. And the answer he gave has some people scratching their heads. Let's listen to cut two. And to clarify on chemical weapons, could if chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would it would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross. We'd make that decision at the time. A response in kind, by definition, would be NATO responding with chemical weapons. I, I don't believe that's what he meant. Um, It was sort of an ambiguous response there, which is sometimes strategic from leaders to they don't want to exactly telegraph what the plan is. But that was so ambiguous with the sense that, you know, oh, we'll respond in kind. We'll make the decision at the time. I just wonder what you made of that answer on the chemical weapons question. I agree with you when he said response in kind. He was not referring to NATO using nuclear weapons. I believe that that was his way of keeping any intelligence to himself. And I don't believe that that kind of information should be shared with the American public. So I don't have a problem with the president not saying, yeah, we would then send boots on the ground or yes, we would then NATO would step in or yes, we would retaliate, you know, an eye for an eye. You, you, you know, you, you throw down on weapons of mass destruction or we'll come back to you double. I mean, obviously he's trying to use specific language that doesn't indicate that we're getting ready for World War III. And that has been his whole mission from the beginning, considering he doesn't want to close the airspace over Ukraine. President Zelensky has insisted to do so. Um, many people have said, why not? Well, the president, President Biden, thinks that that is going to initiate a World War III. Would it? I don't know. But I can certainly tell you that if Vladimir Putin is allowed time to actually take the next step and take nuclear weapons and dump them on Ukraine and kill tens of thousands of people on on top of the thousands more. I mean, we need to do something before that happens. I mean, and, 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 and by the way, as far as the sanctions are concerned and the mixed messages out of the White House, you know, President Biden yesterday came back 
angrily at a reporter who said that you had stated that these sanctions were going to deter Russia from starting this war. And then he comes back and right. he gets all angry and says, I never said that. Well, of course you did. Not only you, Jen Psaki, and multiple White House In officials fact, said that these sanctions were meant to deter the war. So, therefore, so I Julie, think let me just let me ball. jump in and play the play the sound of that. So this was exactly what you're describing yesterday. Biden getting a little uh, just uh, maybe a little gruff with a reporter. He was like almost indignant in his answer here. But as you note, this was not accurate. Here's what it sounded like. This was yesterday. Cut 10. Sir, deterrence didn't work. What makes you think Vladimir Putin will alter course based on the action you've taken today? Let's get something straight. You remember, if you covered me from the very beginning, I did not say that, in fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that. Sanctions never deter. Yeah, so he's kind of huffy here. Like, why do you keep saying that? Why do you keep suggesting that I said sanctions would deter? I never said that. Well, in cut 12, here's like basically every major person in his administration saying exactly the opposite over the last few weeks. Cut 12. The United States, together with our international partners, we're going to work to ensure an additional 15, 15, 15 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas, LNG, for Europe this year. We've agreed on a joint game plan toward that goal while accelerating our progress toward a secure, clean energy future. Yeah, so that was uh, not the montage that we had uh, for Cut 12, but Vice President Harris said the purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence. Uh, Kirby at the Defense Department, we want them to have a deterrent effect clearly that he hasn't invaded yet. Vice President Harris again, we've agreed that the deterrence effect of these sanctions is still a meaningful one. Jake Sullivan, uh, National Security Advisor, the president believes that sanctions are intended to deter. And then Biden yesterday saying, oh, we never said that. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about it. Sanctions never deter. That, to me, is just incoherent, Julie. And I think that's part of the reason maybe why this president has been struggling in his job approval rating, even on this issue where the American people are overwhelmingly united against Russia and in favor of Ukraine. His numbers in a lot of these polls are still mediocre or even upside down on the question because I think of totally incoherent messaging and policies like we just heard there. You know, what this does for me is it basically makes the American public doubt anything that comes out of his mouth. It also makes us doubt why are we in this war in the first place? Because when he announced to the United States that they were going to be that they were implementing tough, tough sanctions against Russia. And we were all told as the American public, okay, that whose tax dollars are now being dumped into Ukraine because of this war, we were told that the president was doing everything he could in his power to prevent it from happening in the first place. And those sanctions were exactly the reason why we all believed perhaps maybe if you strangle Russia economically, they won't have the financial backing to go into this war in the first place. So if he didn't use the sanctions as a deterrence, then what did he do to try to prevent this war? Because if it wasn't to sanction Russia to deter the war, did he do anything? Because that's what he said he was doing. So if he didn't do that, then what did he do? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the question that Dana Perino posed to me earlier on America's Newsroom, like, okay, uh, if all of your previous talking points, and it's not like this was years ago, Julie, this was a few weeks ago. They were all about 
the important deterrent effect of the sanctions, if he wants to kind of pretend that that never happened, I mean, A, he can't because it's all on tape. B, even if he tries to, fine, take the argument at face value. What were you doing then? If if this game plan of yours was never going to work to do the thing like deter Putin that you say it uh, was never intended to do, then what exactly were you attempting? And I don't think that that there's a really good answer there for him to give because their whole policy was deterrence through sanctions and it didn't work. And I mean, you can say, you can admit, you know, look, we, we wanted to do it this way. It didn't work out the way we'd hoped, but now we're united. There are ways that you can be honest about it. And the way that he's trying to spin it is, I would say, quite dishonest, unfortunately. Julie, on a separate issue, but on the subject generally of incoherence, this is closer to home. In New York City, I saw this uh, this tweet from a school social worker who was critical of the current policies in New York City on COVID. And this is based on the science, quote unquote, at the moment in New York City. If you are a middle schooler who has not been vaccinated, you can be in school today without a mask on. But if you are three, you have to wait until April 4th to take your mask off in like a preschool classroom setting, even though we know that three-year-olds are like among the lowest risk in all of COVID, they're still required to mask in New York City, but middle schoolers aren't. Meanwhile, the mayor of New York City has waived athletes and performers, entertainers from the vaccine mandate. This has been an issue with a star basketball player, rumors about at least one major player on the New York Yankees. Would he be able to play? Well, now Eric Adams says, well, if you're a big, famous person uh, in these categories, the vaccine mandate doesn't apply to you. But if you're an essential worker in another realm, you are required to have that vaccine or you can't show up and draw a paycheck. This is a very bizarre new interpretation of the science, is it not? Yeah, it's it's the political science. That's right. You know, I mean, this is what we're following. We're not following the science. We're following following the political science. And quite frankly, I'm very disappointed, actually, in, in, in Mayor Adams. I had a lot of faith in him. I thought he was going to back New Yorkers. I thought he was going to back cops. He's a former cop. Great. So they're all in good. But when it comes to backing New Yorkers, you have to back the New Yorkers that actually put their lives on the line to get us through the last two years of the past hell that we have all endured. And those people, those New Yorkers that you need to reward for those sacrifices are your frontline workers and your cops and your paramedics, yep. your doctors, your nurses. And where where are their jobs? What happens to the 1,500 people that lost their jobs, the cops, the firefighters, because they refused to get vaccinated? Now you're lifting the vaccine mandate, but yet those people are not going to get their jobs back. And he is flat out said. Well, and, and the mandate's been back. lifted for famous athletes and, and these sort of millionaire performers. It, it doesn't make any sense. It is the political science. It is not the real science. You are right about that. Julie Benderas, Fox News anchor. Always appreciate it, Julie. Talk soon. Sure thing. We'll be right back. Have a great weekend. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. So in that last segment, we were chatting with Julie Benderas, and there was a montage that we meant to play, had a bit of a misfire, but we do have it, and I think it really does speak for itself. Cut 27. The purpose of the sanctions has always been 
and continues to be deterrence. We want them to have a deterrent effect, clearly, and he hasn't invaded yet. We have agreed that the deterrence effect of these sanctions is still a meaningful one. The president believes that sanctions are intended to deter. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that. Sanctions never deter. I mean, just the tail of the tape there is striking. Those were his top officials in his administration with the official line of the U.S. government, which he then tried to wipe away angrily in response to a question yesterday. But videotape and audio tape exists, Mr. President. And this is embarrassing. And it does feed and fuel doubts about his leadership abilities. Guy Benson Show continues next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show, still to come, Carl Rove, the architect, here on the program. Here's a headline from Politico. Red states lead economic recovery, giving GOP ammo against Biden's spending plans. And this was from last year, but the trend continues to this year and to this day. And it details how red states run by conservative and Republican governors and often state legislatures are leading the way on job growth and getting back to full employment and recovering and then some in a couple of these cases, the ground that was lost during the pandemic. And this comes back to a point that I've made multiple times, which is even though we hear attacks regularly from President Biden in the White House against various Republican governors, and the media targets these states, Texas and Florida in particular. So it's just awful what they're doing and these social policies and just this hellscape that Ron DeSantis is creating and Greg Abbott and the list goes on. And then you see what people are actually doing. You see where people are moving. You see where the job growth is, where the opportunity is. And it just tells a very different story than what you often hear from the elite media, which, of course, is aligned heavily with the Democratic Party. And when you see red state after red state after red state leading the way on job growth with the bluest, most liberal states often lagging farthest behind, it's not a coincidence. There's a policy effect at play here. And you can't really argue with results. So on that front, I was very interested by this tweet just yesterday by Derek Thompson, who's a buddy of mine. He was at Northwestern when I was there. He's now at the Atlantic. And he was blown away by this statistic. Listen, he writes, this is nuts. Ten counties, just ten counties in the United States accounted for 80 percent of the total national population growth in 2021 in terms of influx. Ten counties, 80 percent of the total population growth across the country. He says even in the slow growing 21st century There is no modern precedent for anything like this. He asks, where are the 10 counties that accounted for 80 percent of net growth in the United States last year? Well, let's go through them. Number one is Phoenix, Arizona. And Maricopa County. So that is a red state with a red governor and a red legislature, although it's kind of bluing. You've got people escaping ultra-blue California, and Arizona, that county, is at the top of the list. Five out of the ten, half of this list, 
are counties in Texas, including two suburbs of Plano and two suburbs of Houston. Half of the list is Texas. Five counties in Texas. That is extraordinary. Two of the 10 counties are in Florida, in greater Orlando and Fort Myers. Another is in Provo, Utah. So we've got Arizona. We've got a lot of Texas. We've got a couple in Florida. And we've got Utah. The only county that is on this list in the top 10 that is not from a red state is Riverside County, California, sort of inland empire, further east from the coastal, very blue area of Southern California and like Los Angeles and that neck of the woods. Riverside is a conservative area where people have moved. I guess some people couldn't leave the state of California, but some of them may have decided, let me go to a more conservative place. Although you're still in California, you're still stuck there. But nine of those 10 counties that altogether account for 80% of the net population growth in 2021 are in red states. And 70% of the counties are in Texas and Florida alone. That is, in some ways, amazing. It also just kind of speaks for itself. People recognize what works. They recognize where opportunity exists. They recognize where freedom exists and where it doesn't. And they act accordingly. Now, what about the flip side of this? What are the top 10 counties in decline over the course of the pandemic? The Daily Mail out of the UK actually did a story about this. And let me read to you the top 10 counties and what state they're in. Los Angeles County, California, number one. So I would not be surprised if some of those people in Los Angeles County said sayonara and moved to Riverside, inland, more conservative area, or just moved to Arizona or maybe over to Utah. Number two, New York County, New York, New York. Number three, Cook County, Illinois, Chicago. Number four, Kings County, New York. Number five, Queens County, New York. Number six, San Francisco County, California. Number seven, Santa Clara County, California. Number eight, Bronx County, New York. Number nine, Almeida County, California. And then the one red state area, although it has been traditionally a blue area of a red state, an increasingly red state, is Miami-Dade County in Florida. But we know that Florida, net-net, has had a big influx of population over the course of the pandemic. Ron DeSantis has been bragging about this rightly, not just the tourism numbers, but people relocating to that state. Miami-Dade is getting redder. It is less Democratic than it has been in the past, but some people have left that county in Florida, and we see that in the top 10 population growth category, you've got two other counties elsewhere in Florida. But again, the top nine counties in numeric decline over the course of the pandemic, California, New York, Illinois, New York, New York, California, California, New York, California. And at the other end of the spectrum, it's Texas, Arizona, Texas, Texas, Florida, Texas. I mean, the... It's not really subtle, is it? And some people might want to close their eyes and say maybe it's coincidental. 
Obviously, it's not coincidental. And they can gripe and whine about the policies and the leadership in these states, but people are voting with their feet, voting with their wallets, and in November, they'll be voting at the ballot box as well. And I think we might see a redward shift nationally if things maintain the current trajectory. The Guy Benson Show continues. When we come back, some updates on immigration that you need to hear. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday, one and all. I want to bring you a few items on the border and the border crisis. By the way, it is now one year since Kamala Harris, our vice president, was tapped by the president to be border czar. And just such a bang up job she's done. Hasn't she, folks? So this actually aired on CNN. And typically, much of the mainstream media ignores the border crisis entirely. It flares up. From time to time, they'll send some people down there. They'll find angles that suit them. And during the Trump administration, of course, that was people who were suffering and families who were separated and children in cages and all of the stuff, whether it was true or fair or not. The Democrats were interested in exploiting that. The media was as well. Then that's not so much the case under President Biden. They got all excited about the Haitian nationals under the bridge and the whipping that our personnel down there allegedly did. Of course, they didn't, and the video showed it. But the opportunity to blame Border Patrol and blame U.S. officials for what happened there, that was irresistible. So the media was, again, sort of interested for a while. And then that narrative fell apart, and they moved on. We were promised a full investigation and a very quick one as well by Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, We have not gotten the results of that investigation and may never see them because I think we all know why. The president himself and the administration and many of their acolytes in the media took a position that was factually wrong, that smeared U.S. officials, U.S. border officials. And then when they were proven to be wrong in that smear, That's an embarrassment to them, so they don't really want to admit it publicly because that would be bad for politics, and so they're just dropping it. They could not wait to rush out to the cameras and the microphones to denounce, denounce, denounce at the time because they sensed this fleeting political opportunity, and then that story just didn't really work out. So off to the memory hole it goes. We cover the issue, of course, faithfully and regularly here on the show. We check in often with Bill Malugin our Fox colleague down at the border. But even as I was saying, CNN occasionally will drop in to check out what's happening. And what they are seeing is, I think, inescapably problematic. Cut 23, this was earlier. New this morning, U.S. officials are scrambling to prepare for a record-breaking surge of migrants attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border this spring. In a CNN exclusive interview, the chief of Border Patrol says he is bracing for a staggering 8,000 apprehensions a day. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins me now on this story. That is a huge number. It's not just a big number, but the Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz told me that that is the norm that he is expecting over the next 30 to 45 days. 8,000 apprehensions a day is the estimate. That does not count, of course, gotaways, as you might guess from the term apprehensions. 
But those would be the encounters and apprehensions daily, 8,000 a day. It'll come up. It'll come down. We've seen some really bad record-setting numbers in the hottest months where it usually comes down, the foot traffic. We've also seen record-setting numbers the last couple months in the winter where often it's not as bad. Peak season is coming up. Spring. April, May, June is when an already terrible border crisis is going to get even worse. And you layer on top of that the Title 42 issue, which we talked about recently with Malugin here, which is Biden preparing to get rid of Title II expulsions, which is related to the pandemic where you can just quickly toss illegal immigrants back out of the country, citing public health issues and the pandemic. They're going to get rid of that. They're going to allow Title 42 expulsions to expire as a tool that they can use, which will then further incentivize additional illegal immigration on top of the seasonal stuff. And once people come here, it'll be harder for them to be removed from the country because we know that this is an administration that is hostile to deportation as deportations have crashed and cratered under this presidency. So as bad as it has been. For the last year plus under the Biden administration, it is about to get significantly worse. Bad enough that some of our colleagues in the press that prefer not to focus too much on this story can't help but notice it. And I suspect it will once again rear its head, not just in right-leaning circles, but across the country in the next few months, and it will reemerge, immigration, illegal immigration, border crisis, all of it, will reemerge as a major campaign issue because the Democrats are lost on this issue. They are, in some cases, openly pro-illegal immigration, and the activist class that they are beholden to absolutely falls under that category, pro-illegal immigration. Then you've got others who want to seem more moderate and express concerns, but they don't want to tick off the base either. They don't want to be called xenophobes and racists, so they're not quite sure where to stand up. And you have a fractured party. But the one thing that is clear is that they are absolutely, hopelessly weak on this issue. Enforcement is not a priority at the very least. And that's not just my sort of hot take here. That's not my opinion. They have explicitly put in writing their desire to tamp down enforcement, to gut and undermine enforcement. That has been their policy. That has been, in many cases, their rhetoric. And people's reactions, right, the incentives laid out, have been responded to by illegal immigrants because they're not stupid people. They take the cues and they want an opportunity to come here. And if they feel like they can come here illegally and get away with it, they're going to. And you can't really blame them for that. You can blame American officials who make that an attractive, appealing option to them. Which puts many people, including kids, on very dangerous journeys. It makes a mockery of the rule of law in this country and our sovereignty. And it's also just a stick in the eye of every person who has gone through the legal process to come here, through the proper channels, because we are a welcoming country of immigrants. 
but it has to be done legally. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it just happens to be true. And we have people in charge right now who barely believe that at all. And in some cases, don't really believe it. Manifestly, based on not just their words, but their conduct and their official actions under the auspices of their roles in the federal government. Here's one more story related to this broader issue. Wall Street Journal headline today, Ukrainian refugees find easier path to enter U.S. at the Mexican border. And the story is datelined Tijuana, Mexico, and it follows a young man, 33, and his family who walked up to the U.S. border, the U.S.-Mexican border. This was on Sunday to ask for asylum. And the way that they decided to try to get into the United States was to flee Ukraine by land through Moldova. Then they got to Germany from there, then flew to Cancun, Mexico, then made the journey up to Tijuana and presented themselves at the U.S. border. Now, I feel for this family. We are taking, it was just announced this week, more Ukrainian refugees into the United States. And I think we absolutely should accept more refugees based on what they're enduring. We just read the horrors playing out in Mariupol. That report, we shared that with you this week. It was very difficult to read, very difficult, I'd imagine, to hear. We, of course, want to help these people. The fact that people are recognizing, even in war-torn, far-flung Ukraine, that perhaps their best way to get here fastest is through the southern border, as opposed to through proper channels, is not an indictment of them. It's probably, in some ways, the right calculus on their part. It is an indictment of our system and our leadership, which is just so broken on this issue. And they always say, oh, well, we have a broken system, and therefore we need comprehensive reform with all of these things, and we're going to have a path to citizenship for all these millions of people, and they have this whole big plan. And at one time I was on board for some of that stuff. I still am in theory, at least a path to legalization and a few other things, a DREAM Act. I'm not against some of these things. But no way should we be going in that direction with any form of amnesty for anyone until we get the actual root problem under control, which is a broken border and a lack of commitment to enforcement. Take care of enforcement and sovereignty first, then talk to me about other stuff later. We've got to take a break. When we come back, it will be our final hour here, the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Carl Rove joins me straight ahead. Stay tuned for that. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Happy Friday, one and all. I'm Guy Benson. 
Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. Many ways to listen live between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday. You can also catch our podcast on demand around the clock for free. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious, and some might be consumed and imbibed uh, later this evening, in fact, on my part. We shall see. As we begin our final hour, let's guess, let's get rather to our second-to-last guest, Kat Timp still coming up later in the hour. But it is Carl Rove joining us now, former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to President George W. Bush. He's author of the book The Triumph of William McKinley. He's a columnist at The Wall Street Journal and, of course, also a Fox News contributor. Carl, good to talk to you again. Thank you, Guy. Great to, great to hear your voice. And likewise, and I want to start with your analysis on this. I've been a little bit surprised by the lack of a bump, some sort of lasting bounce for President Biden on what's happening in Ukraine. Not that he's handling it perfectly. I think he's done some things pretty well, other things not terribly well at all. But he's the American president. The American people are overwhelmingly united on the question of who's in the right, who's in the wrong in that conflict. And that's a kind of a rare moment of unity in the country, but it doesn't really seem to be rubbing off on the president's approval ratings overall. The new Fox News poll has him 21 points underwater on the issue of Russia. Are you surprised by the lack of a bounce or bump here for the president on this issue? Well, uh, not really. I mean, you, you, you would expect in a moment of crisis for the country that there would be a rally around the flag effect. But I think there are a couple of things working against it in this instance. First of all, he's not dominating the stage. The stage on our side is dominated by the Churchillian-like figure of President Zelensky of Ukraine. So by comparison, President Trump, President Biden suffers uh, in comparison. I mean, here's a, here's a guy who is clearly demonstrating personal courage, who's inspiring words, whose leadership is strong, and, uh, and, and, and by comparison, the president doesn't stand, stand up as well. The second thing is, is that I do think on some level, people, they may not be able to sort of tap it all together, but they look at what happened in Afghanistan and realize that sent a message of weakness. They may know about the decision to pause, uh, you know, lethal aid to Ukraine, uh, you know, starting in June and not beginning, beginning it again until November. They, they, they may not know the specifics, but they have a Jordan sort of general sense that he did something on Nord Stream 2, which he did in May, where he literally uh, gave up the sanctions imposed by President Trump without getting anything in return. And then they also have a sense, frankly, that he's weak on defense. I mean, remember, this is the guy who comes in and makes a big deal about how he's going to increase defense spending like 1.6 percent, and he's going to increase discretionary domestic spending by, you know, like 15 percent. And then he heralds the defense budget for all the things he's spending on climate. So all of those things have an effect to make him look like he's weak on the international stage, and it's hard to turn things around once that that image has been created. And that image was created over the last year, particularly uh, after August and the debacle in Kabul. Uh, I think that's certainly where it started in earnest. And it seems like they are striving to dig themselves deeper in that hole in terms of weakness on foreign policy with this Iran deal that 
reportedly is in the works that would be hugely beneficial to Tehran, to Moscow, even to Beijing, but to the United States, not so much. And that would be just, I guess, another item on that list, that laundry list that you just went through, Carl. Of course, the other side of this is how much of an around, you know, rally around the flag effect can exist for a president who is struggling so much on economic approval. I mean, you look at the numbers again in our Fox News poll, identical basically to where he is on Russia, underwater big time. They ask people, are things getting better? We're getting worse under his policies, and a majority say it's getting worse. Only 22 percent in the poll say things are getting better because of his policies. His economic approval rating overall is under 40 percent. It's in the 30s. And when people are feeling that kind of pain and there's a, a, a maybe a view of the president and his stewardship of the country that's calcified, it's awfully hard to shake that off, even with some major events that we're currently witnessing. I mean, it has to also come back to that, right, what people are experiencing in their everyday lives here at home, regardless of what's happening abroad. Right. Well, and and you need to look at that from two perspectives. You're absolutely right. Uh, Ukraine is something that's happening across the world. It's on the other side of the globe. Higher prices for everything that you're buying at the grocery store or at the gas pump, uh, you know, or at the at the supermarket, uh, the 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 neighborhood store, the, the 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 mall, all those things are are we're experiencing every day, and so that's more powerful because it's more you know affecting our individual lives. The other thing is is that the president has made a mistake. Uh, the, all these the, the 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 prices that you're paying at the pump and at the grocery, those are Putin's price hikes. Well, <laughs> we were all paying those starting last year. We started. We saw that, you know, starting in the spring and the summer and the fall, and you know, uh, we're, we're feeling it now. Yeah, but we're not going to blame it on Putin per se because you know what? It started long before Putin, and as a result, the president just looks like he's disconnected. He looks like he's a politician at a moment where you need to look like the president. He needs to be shooting straight with us, not treating us like we're some you know idiots that that can be misled by by you know a snappy little phrase that these are Putin's price hikes. I mean, we know that. That's not the case. And a president has to has several things that he needs to have and needs to protect. The image of being a strong leader, the image of being a straight shooter. And the president, President Biden in this instance, has systematically, maybe not intentionally, but systematically nonetheless, reduced the image of himself as a strong leader. And now and now he is undermining his own credibility with with you know something that may sound good to the White House political shop, but to, but grates on the average American because they say that's phony. You're trying to mislead right. me, and and we've felt it, we've lived it. You can't really sell us with that spin. And on the straight shooting point, Carl, we played this montage earlier yesterday at a press conference over in Europe. The president was asked about deterring Putin with sanctions and how that didn't work, and he got. Maybe not churlish, but very defensive, and he challenged the premise of the question, saying that's not something that I've ever said. We never said that you know the sanctions would deter Putin. Sanctions never deter, and everyone just sort of looked around at each other and said that was exactly what the White House talking point was from top to bottom for weeks on end. Here's a little taste of it, cut 27, and then the president, the very last clip is Biden yesterday. The purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence. We want them to have a deterrent effect, clearly, and he hasn't invaded yet. We have agreed 
that the deterrence effect of these sanctions is still a meaningful one? The president believes that sanctions are intended to deter. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that. Sanctions never deter. Carl, it seems to me that this big flub where he's undermined his own administration's talking point from just a few weeks ago that they were all repeating, it kind of fails both of the tests that you just described, the strong leadership test and the straight shooter test. Right. Absolutely. And look, uh, sanctions hopefully do have a deterrent effect. I'll tell you what would have an even stronger effect, you know, keeping the sanctions on Nord Stream 2, not not in essence diminishing America's energy independence. That have a deterrent effect, you know. Not not uh, you know uh, pausing the delivery of lethal aid to Ukraine, but instead stepping it up for five months. That would have a deterrent effect. Now sanctions may have a deterrent effect, but now, but yeah, obviously they didn't deter. So by God, pile them on so that it, that it hurts the Russian economy, which we have to take off our hat. But largely driven by the Europeans, not necessarily the United States, where, where we've recommended doing A, they've pre- recommended doing A plus two. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's been great to see the Europeans step up. Obviously, their minds are concentrated on this because it's their neighborhood that's being threatened. But uh, no, I, this is why the president does this. To does this just is beyond me because he's smarter than this. You know, it's it's the same thing with Putin's price hikes. He he can't really think we're that dumb. Last subject: it's domestic politics and some of the cross currents within the Democratic Party. There is this statement on New York One, a local channel, by AOC, the Congresswoman from New York City, of course, uh, from the left wing of her party. And she was diagnosing the president's struggles in the polls as a betrayal of the base and not doing enough for people who think and act and vote like her. Here's what she said, cut 20. We need to acknowledge that this isn't just about middle of the road, an increasingly narrow band of of independent voters. Uh, But this is really about the collapse in support among young people, among the Democratic base, feeling like they are not, that they worked overtime to get this president elected, and they aren't necessarily being seen. So, Carl, there's a lot of people on the left who truly believe that. Then there's other people in the Democratic Party saying, no, hang on, we've tacked way too far over to the left, and they're getting tugged in both directions at the White House, and it seems like they haven't really negotiated that terribly well. Last thought to you. I couldn't agree with you more. I wrote my column this week about it because there are sort of five approaches to the election. The White House says, uh, let's run on our record. Nancy Pelosi says, yeah, we can run on the record, but we better have better messaging about it. Then you got the progressives who say, no, 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 no. What we got to do is we got to try and pass more left-wing bills in order to – we'll get defeated. That's okay, but it'll demonstrate that we're committed to a left-wing vision. And as, as uh, uh, the head of the Progressive Caucus said, we'll be rewarded by getting bigger margins. Then yeah, well, the I mean, good luck with that, Carl. And I, if so far it's not working out. I mean, the polling not looking great, but that conflict that you're describing is very much front and center in their party. Carl Rove on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Happy hour on this Friday on The Guy Benson Show. Almost of the weekend. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. With us now, Cat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld, every weeknight at 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Also co-host of the Tyrus and Tim podcast. 
And Kat, it is Fridays with Kat, and we are delighted to have you back. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm glad to hear it. So we're on the same page. I want to start with a few food and beverage-related questions. Okay. Starting with this, are you a yes or a no on this? Pepsi, and I'd be out already, by yeah, the way, as out. a Coke Zero person. Like, I'm out. But Pepsi and IHOP team up for a new maple syrup cola. Yeah, look, I'm out, but I'm out with Pepsi. Like, I'm not going to drink a beverage that has calories in it if it's not going to alter my perception of the universe. So <laughs> I, I, I'm not, like, if it's Pepsi or Coke, I, I'm already out, you know? But I'm sure— Oh, it, so this this could be the same answer if it was Coke partnering with IHOP Yeah. for you. Yeah, absolutely, oh. yeah. I mean, I drink water. I drink Powerade Zero. You know, I, I drink Gatorade Zero, even though that does have about 5 to 10 calories in it if you drink the 32-ounce. Uh, but, you know, like, if you're going to be drinking something that's full of sugar, it better also be full of booze, in my opinion. I mean, okay, that's a fair last part. I'm just a Coca-Cola person, and specifically Coke Zero or Coca-Cola Zero Sugar, which has been my go-to basically every day for uh, about a decade. So I will, for example, go into an establishment – and I'll be in the mood for a Coke Zero, and I will ask if they happen to have Coke Zero. And sometimes you'll get a response from the server, something like, "Oh, would a Diet Pepsi be okay?" And you get and you I'm get like, upset, well, and you flip the table, yes. and you get arrested. Like, would, I can't yeah, believe would, that you've been able to keep that from going public for so long, given how frequently that happens to you. Well, when I see people take their phones out when I flip the table, and I know that they're filming, and so I go and either offer them money or smash the phone. Or, right, physical physical violence yes. is what I resort to. You know me. I'm just yes. a thug at heart. Yeah, absolutely. Not people just fe- at heart. People fear me. Not just at heart, but in practice. And, right, right. I'm just a thug, period. Yes, yes. that's me. Uh, people are very afraid of me. But, no, like a rejoinder, is Diet Pepsi okay? To me, is like, is, uh, I don't know, a fork to your eyeball okay? How does that sound? Like that is how strongly I feel about this issue. But you're at least being consistent. You're not taking a side in the cola wars. You are just rejecting cola. I'm just pointing out, though, Coke Zero has zero calories and zero sugar. Why would you be opposed to that? It I, wouldn't be mind-altering, although there's some caffeine in there. No no calories. Yeah, I, I, every now and then I'll have one, but it's also – it doesn't hydrate. So if I'm – you know, I'm, I, I don't like to – you know, food I eat it because I want to not die. Uh, you know – I drink hydrating beverages for the same reason. I want to not die. There's nothing really fun about it, though, because, you know, there, again, there's no booze in it and there's no hydration in it. Do you not get pleasure from eating food that you like? Is it just you, you do it to survive and you don't really care? You're I one of those sometimes people. get uh, get pleasure from eating food, but I, more often than not, I'm one of those um, forgets-to-eat people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's not going to be me. I'll get too busy to eat. I don't really eat breakfast. I'll get too busy to eat lunch from time to time. But I'm someone who is carefully planning dinner most days and thinking about it and planning meals and vacations often. I cook very occasionally. Adam does more of the cooking. And I typically do like appetizers and hors d'oeuvres, and he does main course and sides. So you get a Lunchable out and you put it on a plate? (laughs) <laughs> it's a little more sophisticated okay. than that. All right. But sometimes not much more sophisticated than that. Uh, you know, better stuff. Prosciutto instead of bologna, but it's sort of kind of the same It is same kind principle. of the same. Yeah. So I, whether it's prepared food at the house or going out to dinner, 
this is something that I think a lot about. And even my vacations, I sort of often plan vacations around what is good to eat. Oh, not I. So that's yeah, that's that's how I. Although when I went roll. to Cape May, New Jersey, I was I love soup. Um, I was on a tour to Chowder. I had about we were there for like four days. I had like nine bowls of Chowder, and I finally <laughs> found at the, I forget the name of the restaurant, but can't remember is it where I found the Chowder I spent my whole life looking for. So, um, so are you just like soup as a category? You like? I love soup. all soup. Yeah, not all soup, but like, but a lot of soup. Like, what do you think of French onion soup? Love it. Okay. Love French yeah, onion. See, you love and a Christine chowder. need to have a com- Yep. Love a chicken. Yep. Love a brocchi. It's just something about the soup where you're eating it and you're eating the soup and it's all warm and you just feel like everything's going to be okay. Well, I'll tell you this, Kat, not to get you too uh, excited over here. And I know this is, you know, this is bordering onto blue material here because we're talking about soup. The other night here in Washington, it was cold. It was drizzly. It was miserable out. We were invited to dinner. They had a special soup on the menu, which was corn and crab chowder. Love it. And it was so – it was everything you hoped it would be. Love it, chowder. Especially in that, in that weather. It was spectacular. And before we get carried away any further, because, I mean, this we've already veered into near-pornographic material right That's here in true. this conversation. This is a family program. We've had more than enough chowder conversation. I want to ask you this. Are you a coffee drinker? Sometimes. I have to be careful with it. Okay, let's take a break and come back and revisit it because there's a new study that I'm not sure I believe. It's about coffee. Coffee drinkers will be very happy, but I'm skeptical. We'll get to that. On the Happy Hour with Kat Timpf, it's The Guy Benson Show. Listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's Fridays with Cat on the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I have some friends in town, and after the show, we're going to head back to the house. We've got dinner reservations, and before we go to dinner, I'm going to introduce them to the Long Drink. And so we have those on ice as we speak. Just a heads up, thelongdrink.com if you want more info there. Cat Timpf is our guest here with us, and before the break, I asked her if she's a coffee drinker. Her answer was sometimes, but she has to be careful. Yeah. Feel free to elaborate real quick on that. Well, I like coffee, and I do drink it sometimes, but I have to be really careful because I can keep me up late. I'm sensitive to caffeine. And then there is cold brew, which I was enjoying for a while, but I'm not allowed to drink um, because I melt down. Like I have such bad anxiety sometimes if I have too much caffeine or if I have cold brew where everything's fine, but I feel as though it's the opposite of soup. Where you you know where you feel like everything's gonna be okay. It's the anti soup where I feel what? like the world is melting down around me to the point where if I break the rules and have a cold brew, Cam won't answer my calls. Like he won't do it anymore. He's he's like I I can't talk you through this again. I told you not to have it. So if I'm at work and I have it and I just want to call him and have him tell me everything's gonna be okay, he's like I can't do that anymore. I, he set that. He said it's called boundaries. I guess people set mm-hmm. these things called boundaries, mm-hmm. and he's he has set that one. That's one of our relationships of boundaries is don't talk to me if you have a cold brew. May I ask you, what would happen if you had a big bowl of nourishing, delicious, steaming hot chowder (laughs) with a cold brew? Would they cancel each other out and you'd be fine? I don't know. I think it might depend on the order. Like if I had the coffee first and then I had the chowder, 
as I was eating whilst, excuse me, whilst I was eating the chowder, <laughs> then I would probably be calmed by the comfort that a chowder can bring. But after it was over, I might panic again. But then if I had the chowder and I had the comforting experience, I don't think it would be able to um, be enough of a vaccine, essentially, against the anguish that the cold brew would bring. Okay, so... So the chowder a- is more of a medication than a vaccine. I got it. So you might be fine during the consumption of the chowder, but yes. as soon as the chowder is gone, you've still got the lingering effects of the cold brew and no chowder to envelop you with warmth and comfort anymore. Absolutely. That's absolutely okay, I'm glad, right. I'm very glad that we've really gone into detail on this because <laughs> if there's one thing America needs to know, it's, it's what we just talked about. Yeah. The reason I brought up the coffee question was foxnews.com has this story. Some new study finds that two to three cups of coffee per day might benefit your heart health. And here's why I'm skeptical of this. I thought coffee was bad for your heart. Yeah. If you drink too much of it, two to three cups a day is a lot of coffee. And I feel like this is the type of thing that happens all the time where you get studies that tell you something causes cancer or something is good for your heart. And then another study comes out two years later and it's diametrically opposed to the last thing that you read. And at a certain point, unless it's really settled, obvious stuff like – you know, smoking cigarettes is bad for your lungs, right? That's yeah. Like, yes, that's true. But some of this other stuff I'm just skeptical of, like the whole wine thing, right? If you drink some wine, it's good for you. I take that to heart because I like wine, but I'm not really sure how true it is or if there is perhaps diminishing returns after your second or third glass. Here we have coffee, allegedly now, good for your heart, two to three cups a day, I I don't know. I know Wyatt across the glass here is a big coffee drinker, so he wants this to be true. So this is the science that he's willing to accept. But I just worry that the science is going to change because the science seems to change on this stuff. Well, I have a solution, which is the way that you get around that worry is you just decide to not listen to any studies about anything. I don't. You might be shocked to hear this. But I don't make decisions based on what, you know, studies say is and is not healthy for me. You, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, health is like there's certain things you can do and there's certain things you shouldn't do. And there's certain, you know, there's certain extremes. So what but health is kind of a, health is kind of a crapshoot. So for me, as long as I am being, you know, functional and for me, I work a lot. Like I, I work a lot more than a 40 hour work week. Um, so I have a demanding work schedule. And as long as I can keep up with that and it's not, like, hurting me, then I just do what makes me feel good. I am the author of my own destiny, and I am the person in charge of my body. So I know what I want to do with my body and not do with my Mm -hmm. body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like this has the workings of a self-help book. Oh, or, or a cult. That's my dream. That's my dream to be a cult leader. I think that I have what it takes. Are you manipulative enough? I don't see. I'm a little too on. Like I, I'm a little too honest, and by honest, I don't mean it as a virtue. I mean impulsive. Um, I don't do a lot of thinking before something flies out of my mouth. So I think yeah, that I feel meant, like cult leaders have to be very calculated. Calculated, right? But I, I'm hoping that maybe there could be just a large enough faction of people that is so obsessed with me that they won't mind. You know, that just they, they, I, they're awestruck in my presence. Uh-huh. And have, have you found any of them yet? <laughs> I don't know. I don't read my Instagram comments. So they're, prob- oh, they're, the prob- they're probably there. 
Um, but I mean, I don't know. Being a cult leader, I think the beginning, like, I don't want to, I don't want to like kill people. I just, I just, I'm attracted to the amount of attention that it would bring. Mm. You know, well, I don't I'm really glad want. You clarified I don't that want power part. and control over the minds and bodies of others. I do want attention. Well, that's different than being a cult leader, right? Just wanting attention. You sound kind of like, you know, a woman. Many people. I, I was not <laughs> going to use that word. And what is a woman? What is a woman? Uh, Indeed. Oh yeah, that's that's apparently the question of of the <laughs> week, right? Uh-huh. What is a woman? It's, it's sort of like shrug shrug emoji. No, and that. This is one of those things where her answer was so bad for, I think, an actually relatable reason. And I've talked about this on Gottfeld, which is with this issue, it's like in my head when someone asks me about it, something just goes off like danger, danger, danger. Even though like I myself (laughs) have a gender, you know, it's it's like because when people are looking at you like ready to pounce, if you say something wrong or something that they think is wrong or in the wrong way and like start a lead a charge for you to be you know completely banished from the public square which i actually think is bad for everyone because even if like your number one main issue in your whole world and your whole life is trans acceptance uh instilling fear in people to talk about something is not the same as acceptance it's it's yes it's gonna hinder the kinds of conversations that you should want people to be having and this is a thing that Mary Catherine Hamm and I say frequently in the context of our book, End of Discussion, which was about exactly what you just described. Mm-hmm. Convincing someone to shut up is not the same as convincing someone. No, and it can right? actually hinder like that. We're doing a lot of convincing people to shut up. Here is my thought, and I, I want to run this past you now that we've veered into actual serious politics yes. for a moment in the Supreme danger, Court nominee this danger. week. Danger, Exactly. <laughs> so Senator Blackburn asked the question. We had Blackburn on the show this week. What is a woman? Can you define a woman? And Judge Jackson said, no, I can't. I'm not a biologist. Okay. Now, I have the ability and I have the benefit of hindsight where you can say, well, here's what I would have said. Mm -hmm. And you never know if in the moment you would be exactly that prescient or quick on your feet or what have you. But to me, and I want to see if you think this is a decent response to that question, a woman – is a female human being generally with two X chromosomes. There are some people who identify as a woman who were not born female, but generally speaking, it is a biological female. And as a judge, it doesn't matter to me because all people in this country deserve equal protection under the law. Yeah, I, that would have been a great answer. I mean, not a bad answer. A lot of le- like, because that is true. When you say woman, I mean, it's 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 you know less than a percent of people who are you know biologically born as men and then identify as women. Uh, that ha- they do exist, obviously. And I will, if if that's how you identify, I'll call you whatever you want. But she yep. could have even simply said, you know, well, there's woman in terms of you know sex, and then there's woman in terms of gender identity. But again, I think the reason that her answer was so bad and there was even a piece in usa today about like kind of rejecting the idea that she brought biology into it which i'm surprised didn't happen sooner and then for the obvious reason you know people who were conservative on this also hated it the reason why her answer was so bad i think was because she panicked because of the issue that we just talked about yeah the the danger signs in her head being like oh this is sort of a trap question yeah it shouldn't be a trap question and again to that fraction of people who are born as one biological sex and then later identify and transition to something else, we can affirm them in their dignity. We can treat them respectfully and fairly and kindly. We also don't have to change the basic definition of words, such as mother, maternity, 
woman. We don't have to change the definition of words to accommodate a small number of people, even while we treat those people well. That's that's sort of my take, broadly speaking, on this stuff. Last question, Kat, because let's get back into nonsense. Perfect. Do you ever pay attention? <laughs> do you ever pay attention to these award shows? Like, I guess the uh, the Oscars are coming up soon. Is it this Sunday? It's I, coming I, up soon. I never do, honestly. Yeah, neither do I. I saw an ad for the Oscars, and I was slightly interested because they're doing a tribute to the James Bond franchise, and I do like the Bond franchise, although I was very unhappy with the ending of the most recent movie. They're also doing a reunion of The Godfather, which I think is exciting and interesting because that's a classic. But just out of curiosity, I went and looked at the Best Picture nominees for this year, and I would like to know, I'll read them to you, uh, how many of these you have seen or heard of. Okay, so here they are. Belfast... Nope. Coda. Nope. Don't look up. Nope. Drive my car. Nope. Dune. Nope. King Richard. Nope. Licorice Pizza. Heard of it. Nightmare Alley. Nope. The Power of Dog. Nope. Or excuse me, The Power of the Dog and West Side Story. Uh, I've heard of it, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I know it's been around a little longer. In, in yeah, the well, play, I saw in the, the theater original. form. Yes, that was also a movie long yep, ago. Yep. Theater is that is that that's how you say it when you're uh, smart fancy. and fancy. Yes, it's it's a very and fancy rich. Way I'm of... extremely rich. <laughs> yes, that's true. A cult leader, according to some. Yeah, uh, I have seen none of these movies. I have neither, heard of neither. more than you have, but I I have seen none of them, and I'm not. It's hard for me to get excited about award shows when I really have no dog in the fight, and I'm basically unfamiliar with all of these. So I know there are film buffs in the audience right now screaming at us. How can you not have heard of Drive My Car? I just, sorry. Yeah, I, I just watched Happy Gilmore over and over again, honestly. So Is I, that your favorite all-time movie? It's, it's the best movie ever. It's got everything. Okay. That is, I think, a good note to end on. <laughs> because the we've, we've angered everyone, I think. Yeah, that's Coffee lovers, best. coffee haters, uh, you know, people on all sides of the trans issue, people who prefer Pepsi, people yep. who like maple syrup, Movie buffs, uh, people who are in cults, uh, we've, we've, we've done enough damage here, so let's put an end to it and say goodbye to Kat Timpf. We'll see you tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern on Gutfeld, Fox News Channel. We'll talk to you again soon. Kat, have a great weekend. You too. All right, The Guy Benson Show continues with the home stretch when we come back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on this Friday. We're almost there. Just a few more minutes, but you're going to want to stay tuned for these few minutes because we've got a very important decision to make collectively here at The Guy Benson Show, where our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free of charge. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. Lots of options there. That includes bonus Benson on the weekends, I should add. Well, we have mentioned this several times before, which is producer Christine really needs a Twitter handle because I often get messages from people wanting me to relay messages to Christine because there's no way for them to directly contact, criticize or praise her. For example, a listener wrote me just the other day demanding that Christine not be allowed to eat or consume a French onion soup flavored item, but in fact has to pay off the bet that we've mentioned before by actually eating French onion soup on the air, which is why I brought up that particular type of soup earlier with Kat Timp. It was a reference back to one of our inside jokes 
which we actually explained in detail one week ago on the Homestretch Friday. You can go back and catch that on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. But we think that Christine should have her own Twitter account, Twitter handle, where she can tweet whatever she wants, and then the people can actually reach out to her and offer color commentary on whatever nonsense she's up to. So I asked the team here to brainstorm a few ideas for potential handles, what her name would be on Twitter. So let's start with Dan. Dan, do you have a few options for us? Yes, I thought of a couple. Um, So the first one would be at XPonyOwner22. Okay. Um, Why the 22? Uh, 2022, you know, just throw in the year. It's a new new account. Okay. Exactly. And then the the second one I had would be at MimeHater2000, because I imagine it happened around the year 2000 from what I heard. Okay. So there are some themes here that Dan has touched on that will be familiar as we go around the horn. Wyatt, do you have any ideas? Yeah, I only have one, but I put a lot of thought into this. Um, It should be at Cookie Jar. So instead of sending out tweets, she will be sending out little cookies out, and, and it's like a little jar of, of all of her ideas could be all sent out into, into the Twitterverse. But At Cookie Jar. Cookie Jar. Okay, actually, I like that. Here are mine before we get to Christine's. So one is at Poor Decor. Another one is Vodka, no D, <laughs> based on how she says that word. Then there's at Wines, not mimes, sort of combines a few of her passions, loving Mama's Juice, being terrified of mimes based on her terrible tragedy years ago. At Carousel Out, at Kremlin Cookie 88, and both Ks, Kremlin Cookie, both with Ks, and then 88, of course, is the year that she won the aerobics championship as an undercover Soviet spy. And then last but not least, at Producer Christine which is maybe a little simple, but also gets to the point. Christine, what do you think of this? Um, I'm going to go with the producer Christine one. Uh, I do like well, the wine. Well, no, you don't, you don't get to decide, actually, because we're going to do a Twitter poll. Oh, on oh. our Yes, on our show Twitter, at Guy Benson Show. You don't have to be a Twitter user. You can just go and you can vote. Quiet Wide is going to post, I would say, four finalists. And our listeners, the people, will get to decide what your Twitter handle is. So let, let's pick some finalists. At Producer Christine, you're okay with that one. We'll do at Cookie Jar. I think that's a good one. I, like I think we one. should what – do you, what do you think about wines, not mimes? I, I like that one. Um, am I allowed to give a suggestion? Sure, yeah. Uh, what about just Cookie's Calling? Because all I do is call people all day, every day to try to book. That's true. I didn't. I was thinking about some sort of stalker-themed nickname here, but I couldn't make one really work. Kremlin Cookie eighty eight is good. Carousel I, I out. Just think. Let's get rid of the Kremlin Cookie for right now, don't you think? All right, we're going to put up the poll at Guy Benson Show on Twitter. I will absolutely vote. I hope you do too. And then Christine has committed privately to create a Twitter account. And begin a journey on Twitter in the context of the Guy Benson Show and all of her, uh, shall we say, adventures here on the program. So we can announce the result next week, and then people can start following you. I'd be very curious to see how many followers 
you pick up when we announce everything next week. Are you excited? I am so excited. I actually just got a message today from somebody saying how bad they felt for me with the whole apartment situation. So, um, you know, I needed a place to connect with my fans, and I, I look forward to the journey. Okay. Well, stay tuned for that. We'll bring you the results next week. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay sane. Back here on Monday, same time, same place for The Guy Benson Show. the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.